Hi, this is Joel Selvin, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast, with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. For music business worldwide, key insights from the latest IFPA Global Music Report. Directly from Spotify, music economic site Loud and Clear, updated with 2021 figures. And from Bloomberg, what crypto enthusiasts get wrong about entertainment. Oh yeah, we got a lot to cover. These are exciting and detailed stories. My friend Jay and I will wax poetic about all of them on episode number 85. Sit back and relax because this is the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Standing by. Your morning coffee, the weekly music news. For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, Jay, it is a Saturday morning for us as we record our show. Yeah. A groovy good morning to you. Good How are you? morning. Doing well. Doing well. I'm caffeinated. And... And go. as per our usual, we are starting at 9.35, even though we logged on at 9 o'clock. And we've been <laughs> conversing about all kinds of things um, since then. Yeah, and that's kind of what this podcast is, is our, our coffee talk just with the record button, right? That's right. That's exactly right. And as I mentioned to you on when we started chatting, I got a chance to see Gang, uh, Gang of Four up in San Francisco Monday night, this last Monday night, and was mightily impressed. What a great band. And they are back out on the road with... I wouldn't say exactly all original. Well, one of the original members, Andy Gill, passed away. But uh, and so they have a new guitar player who's fantastic. Plays very much in the similar style of him. And nice. Uh, nice. I'm glad I had my earplugs in that night. To be honest, pretty loud, a loud, loud. You know, post punk show in nice. a very small venue, which was a blast. But uh, very cool. You know, I'm getting to, getting to that age, Jay, where I need to put earplugs in if it's a little too loud. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to have my ears ringing the next morning. Right? Yeah, I get it. I'm going to go see Delamitri tonight. Um, oh. That should be a lot of fun. Uh, they're they're yeah, playing the Canyon guys. Club, which is really, you know, uh, a stone's throw from my house. So I'm kind of spoiled. You know how it is in L.A. You have to drive like an hour anywhere. And yes. for this one, I could, you know, practically walk. Oh, that'll be fun. A great show. Yeah. They're Scottish, aren't they? I'm trying to remember. They're they're not. I don't know. I think they're Scottish. Um, but yeah, what a great band yeah. from the... Were they late 80s into the 90s? I am I mean, I, even now forgetting I, when they I've were... been listening to those guys for so long. I mean, they're you know, more hooks than a tackle box. You know, it's uh, <laughs> they're just super melodic uh, band. So 
Delamitri. And we, that should be and we share the love of melodic bands. Yes, we do. Without a doubt. And the man that I share the love of the melodic bands is none other than my good buddy, Jay Gilbert. He, as you must know by now, is the co-founder of music and marketing, music marketing and strategy company, Label Logic. He is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups. And he is the dean of the University of Musical Perversity. <laughs> and my uh, longtime friend and co-host here is uh, Mike Etchard. Uh, he was a uh, host of Sound and Vision Radio, former of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music, and my go-to guy when I want to hear like what what cool documentaries are out. <laughs> yes, and you know I was on my trip to San Francisco uh, because I think uh, I went to Sacramento a couple of weeks before that, and that's on on Southwest Airlines. That's where I watched the Sparks documentary, which I love so much. Yeah. I watched it again. Oh, really? On my, on my trip to San Francisco. Wow, that says a lot. Oh, it's a great documentary. God, you gotta you gotta check it out. It's on my list. Um, I'm definitely gonna get there. You know, the other one that's coming up that I'm really excited about is that there's a documentary coming on John Waite on his career. Uh, yes, and yes. Uh, I, know I know a little bit about John the story. Lord. Yeah, because um, I've had the pleasure of working with John for many years, and uh, there are a lot of uh, turns on that road, and it's going to be a really great, great documentary. Well, Jay, we must uh, reach out and mention, of course, our sponsors from with whom we could not do this show. I want to thank the Music Business Association. The four-day Music Biz 2022 conference agenda has just been announced, taking place May 9th through 12th at the JW Marriott in Nashville, yeah. along with returning favorites like the Metadata Summit, hashtag, hashtag, hashtag next <laughs> easy for now. you to say. Easy for me to say, DSP Workshops and Brand Summit, to name just a few. You'll find timely new additions for 2022, including conversations on NFTs, gaming and immersive music experiences, catalog acquisitions, and much, much, much more. Go ahead, jump over to musicbiz.org for more information. Yes, sir. And I'll see you there. Your Morning Coffee podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform. Makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, like hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com Try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, Morning Coffee. That'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is dated. It, it is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Speaking of Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. That would be Music Business Association, Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Big thanks to all of them. Because yeah. We certainly, certainly appreciate it. 
And Jay, we have so much to cover. We should jump right in. Uh, Boy, it's the IFPI Global Music Report. This is from Music Business Worldwide. We're talking about key insights from that latest report. Yeah. And, you know, it's almost worth mentioning, we keep talking about the big year of 1999 and how that was just a enormous year for the music industry. That was the first year I was at Universal, actually. Yeah, I think that's right, um, when we started working together. Yeah, we did, indeed. And so, um, and and it's it sort of mentioned in the article I think we're going to talk about, but you know, I, I had to think back to what exactly made that year so big. And that was really, it was right on the cusp, right, of, of CDs just being enormous. But boy, right on the horizon, you know, if you, it's like the... Um, in the in uh, the Lord of the Rings, when they're walking towards Mordor and they see that, you know, the flames and everything kind of over the mm-hmm. hillside in the distance, it's like yeah. that was brewing in the distance, which was yeah. file trading. Yeah, it was just, just starting, hurrah. right? And mm-hmm. what really made 1999 so big in the music industry was, as you mentioned, CDs were you know at their peak, but it was also boy bands. It was also Britney Spears. And let's not forget, it was also big box retail. So yeah. instead of just having Tower, Tower Records, Warehouse, Musicland, you know, FYE, we started seeing things in, you know, Best Buy, for example, yes. and Target and Walmart and some of these other stores started jumping on that CD bandwagon. And what happened there was there was this race to the bottom when it came to pricing. So it just blew up. Everybody was buying CDs everywhere at that time. But right underneath all of that, uh, the original Napster was, you know, launching and picking up traction and just quietly, you know, these things like LimeWire and things like that were coming along and people were downloading, you know, music for free. And uh, we didn't know uh, what was about to hit we, us. We didn't know what was about to hit us. And that's probably the, the thing that I think about the most, which is, wow, you know, at the, at the time we were just, we were just whistling down the road and, and how great business was. And yeah. like you said, it was, and I remember very distinctly Best Buy and, and Best Buy at the time was using CDs as a loss leader to get people in the store and yeah. sell them a washing machine or sell them a television. That's right. And it was, um, they were a huge customer, but they were also just a disruptive customer because we were getting pushback from all the independent stores in a given town that were saying, hey, I cannot compete with these guys. And yeah. then that brought in MAP, the minimum advertised price you could yep. do, and all kinds of stuff right. changes at that time in yeah. the physical world. Do you remember uh, a gentleman named Gary Shank that we used to work with? Um, His office was next to mine. He ended up later working for Bill Gates, but really great guy, super smart guy. His office was next to mine. And I remember when I first heard about uh, Napster, and it was in 1998, and I, you know, I put it on my computer and took a look at it, and I knocked on the office wall, and I said, Gary, you got to come over here. And he came into my office, and I said, name a band. And he named a band. I typed them in and, you know, everything just showed up. And I said, I can download this and listen to it for free. He's like, oh, my God. I mean, we knew uh, it was the end of an era. Just looking at that, I mean, our hearts dropped. And it it moved like wildfire and really affected uh, the business. But as we're going to talk about today with this IFPI report, 
we've had seven consecutive years of global revenue growth. And I think the point you were trying to make is even though we're hitting these this dollar amount that's higher than 1999 that when you adjust for inflation it's really not as big as 1999 but it's still very very impressive absolutely and so that goes we're going back to 2014 now and when you look at it it's a a, a gain of 18.5% in the global recorded music market growth which is not insignificant. Last year we had a 7.2, and before that 7.8. So this is like a, it's, it's a big, been steady since jump. 2014, but but it's a big jump this year. Absolutely. Yeah, and we should and point so you, out that a couple of weeks ago, you and I talked about the RIAA report. That was US only. The, mm-hmm. These numbers for IFPI, this is global. So yes. one of the things we'll talk about is, you know, when you break down, you know, where does this revenue come from? Globally, it's 65% streaming, whereas in the United States, it's really more, I think, 83%. So um, I'd like to talk about that. I'm kind of skipping ahead here, but I'd like to talk about where that revenue comes from globally, because I think it's really interesting. So a little over 2% comes from sync, you know, getting music and film, TV commercials, TV shows, games. So about 2% comes from sync, which, you know, we've talked about that before. It seems low. Uh, In the United States, I think it was like $300 million. We thought it should have been maybe more than that. Maybe it's underreported. But then you get to the performance rights organizations. It's 9.4%. Here's the one that surprised me a little bit. Physical globally is over 19% of the business. And as you point out frequently, what, what could that number have been if there weren't the issues with producing and shipping uh, vinyl? Right. Absolutely. You know, we've, we've talked numerous times about the challenges and how backed up production is. We just can't get enough product out there. So that number could be, let's just say, 25% physical, which would be remarkable in this day and age. Yeah. Um, I also want to touch, though, on on the, num- the, 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 the worldwide number of users of paid subscription, because we are now talking about a half a billion people that are paid subscribers worldwide right. 523 million so and that's growing but boy that is a big big number and when we and of course this equates to big numbers what we're talking about so you know when we talk about the the changes from that big year of 1999 we have such an enormous people of paying a monthly subscription fee yeah. And again, what a dramatic change that has been, as we've talked about many times. Yeah. It used to be a very cyclical business based on on everything, you know, on, on success of, of certain albums. But now that 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 constant revenue coming in the door has changed everything. Yeah, and it has slowed down a little bit um, mm-hmm. on the paid side as a percentage of growth. And we'll cover that in this uh, Music Business Worldwide article in a second. But it was really surprising to see that ad-supported, uh, you know, the free tier has yeah. grown almost 18%. But globally, just subscription audio streams are up 47% year over year globally, which is absolutely uh, amazing. The only thing that went down, and this is the same with the RIAA report, is you know downloads were globally were down almost 11%. Physical was up, um, it says here, 16%. Um, mm-hmm. And performance rights was up just slightly uh, 4%. And sync, even though that was a lower number, was up 22%. Um, and the top markets, 
this always surprises me when I look at the top global markets because it may not be what you assume it it is. You know, we talk about the UK a lot, and I think that I I just in my mind I think of them as kind of the number two market next to the United States, but it's really Japan. So the top mm-hmm. ten U.S. Japan, number three is UK, four Germany, five France, six China. That surprised me. Seven yeah. South Korea which does more than Canada, which is number eight. Number nine is Australia and 10, Italy. And I, I, that really kind of surprised me. I, what did you take from that? Well, you know, we talk about Japan and, you know, Japan, as we've mentioned a number of times, it was kind of the last holdouts of really substantial physical sales. and But they are making that transition to to streaming as well. Um, I was kind of surprised to see them that far up, to be honest, like you said. Yeah, because um, I think they have yeah. like 89 Tower Records stores in, in Japan, still, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, I mean, they still yes. are holding out and still love that physical product. And I, But I don't think it's really broken down this way here, but I, I wonder, it would be interesting to see the percentage of physical with each of the top uh, markets, yeah, because I got to think that Japan is still going to be a, a, and because physical has has is such a substantial number, I yeah. wonder if Japan is heavily weighted in physical relative to streaming, even though they're making the transition. Yeah, um, but again, and it's interesting to see, um, you know, this is all basically uh, kind of the G G G seven G ten companies, except for China in there and South Korea, but yeah. it's or South Korea is one as well. So. Um, you know, but it's just remarkable to see that we are still at the top in the USA. Yeah, uh, you know, but look I would at the think growth. Maybe we'd be losing that. Look at the uh, look at the growth in that next kind of chart that they have the figures by region. Talk yes. about that a little bit because oh, yeah. it's not just what position you're in. Let's look at the uh, percentage increase year over year for some of these regions. Yeah, so look, you're taking Latin America, 31%, a little over 31% year-over-year growth. And, you know, so even in, in our day in the record business, we, you know, we would, in those days, principally talk about Japan, of course, was always a, a large uh, country, and then Europe, the UK, and then the US. Those were kind of it. Now we're talking about Middle East and North Africa with a 35% increase. Wow. On here is Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, almost 10%. Australasia, 4.1%. Um, you know, we're talking about regions now in the world that historically have not been something that we talked about. I mean, certainly international pe- folks would, would know about them, but we're really seeing a huge growth in streaming yeah. opportunities in these these unique areas, yeah. unique to us. Yeah, that was really impressive to me because, you know, USA and Canada uh, year over year had uh, 22% overall growth, those regions. And as you just pointed out, the Middle East and North Africa overperformed that. It was 35% uh, yeah. growth. So that's, that's super impressive. I wanted to kind of see, because I hear this a lot, you know, when someone says, oh, well, vinyl is up, but that's all Adele or, you know, which isn't entirely true, but she certainly had some pretty big numbers. Um, it, it is true to say that releases from the biggest global artist really shaped those global charts, uh, and, and grew that revenue. And those like that, the five that they point out, you know, BTS, of course, mm-hmm. right? Taylor Swift, yep. Adele, mm-hmm. uh, Drake, and Ed Sheeran. So, but every year you're going to have, you know, the these kinds of artists. 
Um, another a chart that I'd I'd love to kind of review with you that man, this I, I love this so much. They they pulled out the global vinyl bestsellers. So yes. not just the RIAA in the United States, but this is globally. And it might surprise some people because yeah, you do have, you know, Olivia Rodrigo, you know, at number four, but you've got Fleetwood Mac rumors at number three. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. By the way, I want to jump back for a second, though, before we jump, before we talk about that. Sure. One of the things, let's talk about Taylor Swift for a second. It's, it said Taylor Swift sold more vinyl than any other artist in 2021, driven by the Taylor's version releases of Red and, um, and Fearless. You know, the whole thing with Taylor Swift and her re-records, I, we've talked about it before, but I still want to bring it up because it's unheard of. You know, we, we've many artists we know over the years have re-recorded their albums because they, they don't have the rights themselves, so they re-record them. And it's always been kind of a dirty little secret in the business. Taylor Swift has managed and her team have managed to kind of flip the switch and make it a cool thing. Right. And have made it so... And these are, these are releases that she, of course, controls. Yeah. And... That is a stunning. Yeah, let's that those let's talk about that for a second because you make a really good point. When you typically, when you sign a recording contract, there's a clause mm-hmm. in the contract that says you can't re-record those songs, and then there's a term, right? And when that term expires, then you can. And typically, artists will do re-records for sync because it's yes. a negotiated rate. Uh, for sync licensing, and they want to use their own version of the song, and they'll record it and make it sound as close to the original as possible, close enough to where they can land some sync licensing fees uh, for that. But Taylor took it a whole different direction and really went in there and re-recorded these albums, not just for sync, but for the streaming services and for physical goods. And as you point out, it's really unprecedented. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, so back to the global vinyl chart. Yeah, it was shockingly to see Fleetwood Mac, a, a record that came out, rumors in 1977, I think. Um, and here it is, still on the charts, on the vinyl charts. Of course, we at number 11, we have Queen's Greatest Hits. At number 12, we have ABBA Voyage. I think that's their new one. Well, yeah, um, and, and number seven, an even older record, the, the Beatles' Abbey Road. Abbey Road, yeah. Dark number Side eight of the is Moon. Nirvana, Nevermind. Number nine is Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Then we've got another Taylor Swift. Um, and we've got, you know, Let It Be. We've got Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, which is now, gosh, two, how long? That's, that's been out for a while now, of course. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so it's really interesting, but number 20, this one kind of blew me away to be honest. Uh, uh, Lana Del Rey, chemtrails over the country club made it on the top 20 list for vinyl. So good. 191,000 sold of, of that release. There were a few surprises on here. Uh, for me, I didn't realize that Kendrick Lamar had sold almost 200,000 vinyl units uh, globally. And then, you know, Bob Marley and the Whalers, uh, legend, you know, um, Mm -hmm. 213,000 units. And again, we have to kind of preface this by saying these are great numbers, but what could they have been? They could have been more. Yeah, they could have been higher, which is remarkable. Yeah, and I think uh, it's probably not an insane suggestion to add twenty five percent to all these numbers if supply was truly meeting demand. Yeah. Um, so that's that's pretty remarkable when we talk about it. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating stuff in this in this report, and it's really worth checking out. And again, it just it, yeah. it's really the exclamation point on 
on its markets that we are very familiar with, but it's also these developing markets and how yeah. they are really coming coming up in this chart. And yeah. we'll continue to do so. Yeah, so and let's talk about and healthy. you know that this report is awesome, <clears throat> and we'll be digging through it. We have there's two versions of it, as Tim Ingham points out in his article for Music Business Worldwide. There's kind of the free version, and then there's a version that you pay for. <clears throat> We're kind of uh, reviewing the free version, although we just got the. Uh, the paid for version. Um, but what I love about Tim Ingham's piece and the headline is free music streaming paid the record industry 4.6 billion in 2021. The other mm -hmm. key and other key insights from the latest IFPI global music report. So let's take a look at some of his insights. One is ad funded streaming is generating nearly as much revenue for the global music industry as physical formats. And it grew by 1.1 billion in 2021. That's remarkable. He says that annual paid for streaming revenues, you know, bounced up to 2.2 billion um, or no, I'm sorry. They, they bounced up that much by 2.2 billion to 12.3 billion last year. So ad funded, as we talked about is, is still um, growing um, as well as paid. Paid is still growing, but not as a percentage like it was. It's it's definitely slowed down. And you know, as we point out, there's really good news on the physical format side. Um, CD and vinyl combined uh, grew revenues to five billion in 2021, up from 4.3 billion in 2020. Um, so all of these different areas, other than kind of downloads, they're all growing. Um, in a big way, and the the revenue is is massive. Yeah, and as he said, here comes China and Italy and India and the Middle East. One of the most remarkable stats to emerge uh, was the annual revenues from every individual country. Somewhere around seventy territories tracked by the IFPA grew in twenty twenty one. It was, uh, wow. and so we're talking about. Uh, you know, again, these areas like Africa, Middle East, and Asia, and China, um, just growing and and popping up on these lists. And again, it's it's these are countries that certainly international departments were aware of, but these are really becoming yeah big, big, big players in the in the global music industry. And yeah. it's 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 a worldwide business in a way that it wasn't before. Yeah, and they also talk about your favorite thing, ARPU. ARPU. Average revenue per user. Um, you know, there's a slowdown in the growth, as we just mentioned, of mm -hmm. users. Just, you know, a slight slowdown in the in the growth of the users of paid streaming. But the average revenue per user, ARPU, is is going up a, a little bit. And that's that's a positive thing. Um, music Business Worldwide, you know, Tim Ingham and his team, you know, calculated that uh, the approximate ARPU um, the number came out to be about $23.52 uh, per year, which is about $1.96 per month. And that sounds really low when you think about, well, wait a second, I'm paying $10 a month for mine. But mm -hmm. there's so many, you know, free subscriptions, student subscriptions, free trials, you know, things like that. And it, all of that, on average, lowers that ARPU. Um, but when you're talking about more than a half a billion users, even a small increase makes a huge difference. Yes. And I'm wondering if we're going to see um, rates go up a little bit this coming year for, for the subscription rates yeah. for, for individual customers. Um, I kind of hope so because it's still such a, a bargain. It really is an inexpensive thing, and I would like to see that uh, happen. Yeah. However, as he points out, inflation 
and not getting carried there it away. Is. <laughs> he said, as you can see in the below chart, uh, lifted from the IFPI's GMR, uh, Global Record Music, trade revenues hit their largest volume on record in 2021. The $25.9 billion generated in the year bested for the first time the worldwide record industry's previous peak of 1999 when it generated $24.1 billion. Mm-hmm. That's a historic milestone, but what they aren't shouting about, because it's like uh, the reality, is there's a different angle, inflation. The gradual eroding of the worth of a single unit of currency is very much a present concern for businesses and consumers. Obviously, we've got an annual inflation rate right now of 7.9% predicted for this coming year. To this end, it's worth using reverse inflation to discover what the $24.1 billion figure from 1999 would be worth at the close of 2021? And the answer is a little over $39 billion. So yes, it's been an epic year, but adjusted for inflation, that 1990 year would be almost $40 billion. Right. And you're comparing that to about $26 billion, um, mm -hmm. which is what we hit uh, this year. So, you know, it's yeah, if you adjust for inflation, we have a little bit of uh, a ways to go, but it's pretty impressive still. Growth in all those 70 countries, like you mentioned, pretty much every format other than digital downloads is growing. It's growing uh, in, a, in a big way, and I think that's really great news for our business. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, speaking of the business, let's jump over to this uh, This from Spotify directly. The music yeah. economic site, Loud and Clear, updated with 2021 figures. And yeah. we always talk about this. It is an absolutely gorgeous piece yeah. of documentary, piece of uh, of creation of this of this sort of deck. Yeah. It is beautiful. They do this, this each is, year. Uh, it's so beautiful as they lay this out. You and I were talking earlier just about visually stunning how uh, Spotify puts this uh, report together every week. And as we get in, we're going to talk about the 10 takeaways from this loud and clear uh, report. And if you want to read through it, and there's a great message from Daniel Eck, there's all sorts of stats and figures. If you're into that sort of thing, the link is in your morning coffee. Um, But as you go to the site, there's a a few sentences that kind of set it up. And it says that artists deserve clarity about the economics of music streaming. Last year, we launched this site to increase transparency by sharing new data on Spotify's royalty payments and breaking down the global streaming economy, the players, and the process. The data shows the music industry is healthier than it's been in a long time, and more artists are finding more success than ever before. But we're nowhere near done, and we'll keep pushing to grow the industry. So let's let's talk about those 10 takeaways. Sure. So number one is uh, in 2021, Spotify paid out more than any other service and set the record for the highest annual payment from any single retailer in history. In 2021, the number was five billion. In 20, I'm sorry, in 2020, the number was five billion. In 2021, it was seven billion dollars. And as they say, we paid music rights holders more money than ever in 2021. Uh, that's the the seven 
the pl- uh, little over $7 billion up from five in 2020. That's more than double what we paid out in 2017, which was $3.3 billion, and represents a big part of the $30 billion we've paid to rights holders since our founding. Yeah. Even adjusting for inflation, the $7 billion total is the largest sum paid by one retailer to the music industry in one year in history, including any single retailer at the height of the CD or digital That's download. pretty impressive. Um, it is impressive. And we always talk about the number one streaming service for music is really YouTube, but mm-hmm. it's not where the revenue is coming from. People have complained nope. about the revenue that's paid out from YouTube forever, and hopefully we can get that fixed. So that was the number one takeaway, on that, and that's pretty impressive. Number two, in 2021, streaming revenue alone exceeded total industry revenue from 2009 to 2016. Uh, yeah, wow. That's pretty amazing. That, that yeah. is, is really, really amazing. Um, it's, it's a lot of money from streaming and we've broken down the economics of streaming. Um, Spotify and these DSPs are not, you know, the bad guys in, in this situation. I think we have a really big pie now and it's up to the industry to figure out how best to uh, have those slices appropriately uh, divvied up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, number three, for the first time, over a thousand artists generated over one million dollars on Spotify. Uh, that's a, a new new landmark, they say. Yeah. Uh, but when artists hit new heights, it's time to launch additional milestones. New to the site in 2021, since so many artists have far surpassed the one million dollar level, we've added two million and five million dollar data to our site. So they say in 2021, 450 artists generated more than two million dollars on Spotify an increase of 110% in five years, and 130 artists generated over $5 million, an increase of 160% in the same period. So that is very interesting. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of artists, indie and major label signed artists, making a lot of money um, from streaming, and Spotify in particular here. And if you scroll down in this site, if you want to explore it, they have this beautiful interface and these kind of bouncing balls that you can click on and see all these different um, revenue milestones and how many artists have achieved it. But a 1,000 artists with over a million dollars just from Spotify, um, that's surprising to a lot of people. Um, the next one, over 50,000 artists generated $10,000 from Spotify alone and likely over $40,000 across all recorded revenue sources. That's 50,000 artists. Mm-hmm. So those that say that you know streaming doesn't pay, well, it is challenging for developing and middle-class artists. But if you are the rights holder, there is revenue to be made. It says more artists are hitting these milestones across all revenue levels from $1,000 to $5 million, and the numbers are accelerating fast. The number of artists who achieved each of these milestones has doubled since 2017. That's impressive. And when taking yeah. into account earnings from other services and recorded revenue streams, these artists are likely to be generating four times these, these numbers. Not bad. Not, not bad. I mean, it's somewhat encouraging. Um, the next one, the, the fifth one they mention is major record labels earned over $4 billion in profit in 2021, driven by streaming. Um uh, uh, Spotify payments represent around a third of that streaming total. Major label profits in 2021 exceeded $4 billion, meaning more money to reinvest to grow the industry. Right. And there's that's one revenue stream, right? There's, like we talked about before, there's sync licensing, there's merch, there's touring, there's physical goods, 
CDs and vinyl when we can ship it. Um, yep. And the three the three major labels, by the way, jointly brought in over twenty five billion dollars in revenue last yeah. year. And then the other revenue source that we don't talk about enough, I think, well, you and I do, is you know for the second year running, Spotify paid out more than a billion dollars to publishing. That's incredible song that, you know, and that goes to songwriters, typically songwriters and producers, you know, through their publishing companies that, that generated record revenues. And that's all driven by streaming services. Publishing rights uh, holders earned $3.5 billion from streaming in 2020. Uh, and that sum is more than the publishing revenue from CDs and downloads any year in the 21st century. Wow. Right. But let's not forget, they also <clears throat> are trying to pay less for publishing. That's right. We won't get into that <laughs> yeah. whole CRB discussion uh, again, but you're absolutely but I'm right. Just they're, saying. they're fighting it. You got it. I'm <laughs> just saying. You got it. That's right. So the number seven was the industry at the height of the CD era fav- uh, favored the top 50 artists twice as much as today. That surprised me. Very interesting. Yes, it does. Me too. Absolutely. More artists are sharing in today's thriving music economy than ever before. As, as I mentioned, in the peak of the CD era, nearly 25% of U.S. album sales were accounted for by the top 50 artists. On Spotify in 2021, only 12% of U.S. streams were of the top 50 artists, meaning that revenue opportunities now reach far beyond the superstars. Yeah, it, okay. it may not be the long tail, but it's certainly not just the head of the rat. Yeah, exactly. Um, number eight, over 28% of artists who generated over $10,000 self-distribute to Spotify. Wow. That's fascinating. That's almost a third yes of those that generated over $10,000 are using things like, you know, TuneCore, DistroKid, CD Baby, STEM. You know, they're kind of this DIY thing. And that's that's impressive. That was over 15,000 artists, you know, and that represents a 171% increase in in just the five years, the last five years. So that's pretty impressive. Very much so. Absolutely. Uh, the number nine is artists can go from zero to career faster than ever. Streaming has lowered the barriers to entry to music and accelerated the path to finding a global fan base, meaning artists can go from first single to first significant paycheck fast. Over 10% of the artists, about 5,300, who generated more than $10,000 on Spotify in 2021 released their first song ever in the last two years. In 2021, 350 of them generated $100,000 from Spotify alone. Yeah. So that's kind of nice as well. It is. And I think TikTok has a lot to do with that. And yes. and just having those 70 million tracks in your pocket, you know, on your phone, whatever your DSP of choice is. And then really the last one, um, and I thought this is really a good sign for our industry, 34% of artists who generated more than $10,000 on Spotify live in countries outside of the top 10 music market. So we're hitting more independent artists and we're hitting more different markets. Streaming revenue is bringing real scale to the music industries of emerging markets. And I think that's crucial for our business. It makes it increasingly possible to pursue a professional career as an artist in countries around the world. So, you know, I see this as all really positive news. You know, we're reaching a lot more people. There's a lot more um, free subscribers, which I don't think is super healthy for our business, but there's a lot more paid subscribers and the overall pie is getting bigger and bigger. 
Now we just need to address those things that you and I talk about frequently, like how much people are paid uh, for these streams and how that, that mm-hmm. pie is broken up. And the publishing issue for yeah, sure. Absolutely. But, you know, and I and you know, when I when I look at the this deck, or it's not really a deck, but I mean this this presentation document, Sure looks like one. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um I wonder <laughs> how many people at, at Spotify are in the department of this stuff. I mean, it's gotta be like a huge team that is able to collate and and you know, again, a lot of this is is kind of feel good stuff, you know. It's like it's so you you know, parsing through the data presenting it in a manner which kind of is the narrative of what they're trying to present and then just the 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 beautiful production of these things is yeah. pretty remarkable it's got to be a gigantic department that's obviously yeah. working on this stuff around the clock year round yeah well i can tell you from working with data it's really challenging to present data in a way that is appealing and interesting and where you can kind of tell at a glance. Yes. And you and I talked about this with that, uh, that article called Twitch's Rockonomics by Will Page. Mm-hmm. Just the beauty of that presentation ma- laid it out. And, and this is very similar to that where the graphics um, are just so well laid out and everything's kind of in bite-sized chunks because most people don't like to read a lot of text today. And, and they know that, so they put these things together in these little bullet point bite-sized chunks with some visuals yeah. that help you lock it in. So kudos to uh, the Spotify team. Uh, they put together this website called Loud and Clear. And again, there's a link to it. And they've updated uh, all of these figures for 2021 um, year over year. And it's, it's really impressive. Yeah, nice job, nice job. Well, our last story of the J of the J of the day, J, uh, is from Bloomberg. What crypto enthusiasts get wrong about entertainment, um, and this is really interesting because of so much going on with NFTs and cryptocurrency and all that stuff. And, yeah, and you know, there's also a lot of of stuff coming out about the flip side of it, the kind of the dark side, the negative side of these things. Yeah, um, but this in this article. It says artists can now make a project without a studio or record label. It doesn't mean they want to. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? And we talk about this a lot. Is that congratulations? You know, you you have a recording studio. You you have you you're your own marketing manager. You all this self distribute. You know that's right. But it's it's a lot and lot of work. You know, I I don't do my own taxes because right. could I do them? I suppose so. But you know, I I, I don't change my oil anymore There's i don't only do my own so many jobs. hours in a day that's right you know somebody yes. told me one time that when when you're young you have lots of time and no money and then when you get a little older you have a little bit of money and no time and i think that's that right. the older folks get and that's part of it but do you really want to spend your time doing some of these things and that's really the basis of this article and i i try to avoid a lot of uh web 3.0 nft you know, Dow kind of discussions, unless it's something mm-hmm. that I feel is really helpful. This article actually linked to one of my favorite articles that I highly recommend uh, by Kevin Roos at the New York Times. The headline was The Latecomer's Guide to Crypto, because, you know, it's like my grandfather used to say, an idiot is someone who doesn't know what you just found out. And this stuff has been around like a week and a half. And yes, everybody's getting super excited about it. And some some artists have made millions of dollars and there's feels like there's a gold rush now, but the bottom line is an NFT is basically a, a digital collectible. And in order for somebody to purchase a digital collectible, 
there there needs to be a, a demand for that. There needs to be a fan base, somebody who wants that. You're not just going to be a new developing artist and make a bunch of NFTs and get rich and, and you're done. And I think because of that gold rush mentality, um, you need an article like this that just says, let's calm down a, a minute here. Right. Absolutely. And let me just read just like a first few sentences of this because it really sets the stage. It says, if you've spent any time on the Internet this year, chances are you've heard about cryptocurrencies, NFTs, the metaverse or Web3, maybe all of the above. I will spare you another long post explaining those things and what they mean and if they will or won't change your life. If you listen to crypto, NFT, Web3 enthusiasts, they believe these new technologies will reshape the relationship between artist and fan, eliminating the meddling middleman. And he goes on to compare, you know, the film industry and the music industry. And he, one of the quotes that jumped out at me, he said that a lot of people believe that the fan is the new record label. And when you have demand, that can be true when you're selling directly to that fan and you're selling high priced, you know, uh, whether it's uh, experiences or meet and greets and, and things like that, there can be that direct to fan. But for most artists, as they're starting out, they don't have that luxury. And as you point out, this is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. He, he, by the way, this is the Bloomberg newsletter that we're reading from. And this is Lucas Shaw. So he must have been at South by Southwest because I think he, he talks yes. about it in here. Yeah. But he does, he, he does say something. He says, you know, Musicians have always hated record labels and view them as exploit exploitative forces. They sign artists for long-term contracts, offering advances, blah, blah, blah. Filmmakers and screenwriters haven't been exploited in quite the same way, but studios discriminate against women and people of color, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the the bottom line is, as he says, and yet the utopian view of fully decentralized media ecosystem ignores a simple fact. There it is. Most musicians... Actors, writers, filmmakers, and creative people prefer the support of an institution with expertise. There it is. It makes their lives easier. Expertise. And, you know, what do we essentially want from our artists? We want them to create great art. We don't necessarily care that they're good marketers. We want them to create great art. And so how does that, how can we enable that to happen? And it's not by making them do everything that they're not good at. Right. And this is the thing, you know, it, it, and the music business, when we got into it, you know, was it exploitative? Well, this is sort of, but don't forget, especially in those days, if you got signed, th- most labels really did try to, did the best they could do. They, they put you in a, in a recording studio, with a, in a good recording studio with producers and engineers that had been in the business for a long time. They really tried to put all their resources to your right. career. We saw and it year they, after year, at, right? That's right. And they put money into it. You know, they, a lot. they they invested a lot of money into it. So, you know, so they took the risk basically. There it is. And the risk. Were, and yeah. and as you know, you know, a majority of what they did that for didn't recoup. Right? It's yes, a, this business has exactly a 93% right. failure rate, but you know, even those big successful labels like Atlantic and Republic and Interscope and so on, they have their misses. And so 
that's why they have to throw gasoline on those fires. I will never bash labels. You know, you and I have worked for labels. We know the power of labels. And it, it comes down to resources. They talk about Dua Lipa, you know, that she wouldn't be Dua Lipa if it weren't for the help of her managers or publisher and the record label. All of those partners took money off, off of her plate, but they also increased her total earnings. As you point out, it, it's, yes, it's A&R, it's, you know, getting the right producer and the right sound and the right songs and making sure that that music is as good as it can possibly be. But it's so much more than that. It's using those relationships that they have, whether it's with getting them on the right tour or getting them, you know, some sync licenses or there's there's a whole myriad of things that a really good label can take an artist to another level. Um, and there's some luck involved in some of this. There's totally there's timing yeah. and seasonality and all of these things. But yes, a label today can be a bank to some folks, but not all of them. You know, you get some of these labels where they're evangelists. They can take uh, an artist to a whole nother level. And that's in music, by the way. And as he says in the article, the resources required to make a movie are even greater. A writer-director can fund a movie and film it without the help of a major studio. Hundreds of people do it every year. But when a studio offers a director help, most of them say yes. Your life is a lot easier when someone else has to worry about finding financing, <laughs> booking travel, hiring a crew, marketing a release, and securing distribution. Yeah. It really does make a difference when you're... When you're making the art to have help with all of those other tangential things yeah. is crucial, I think. Yeah. It's, it's asking way too much of, of creators to do all of that. I agree. And I think that just because there's new technologies, you don't have to forsake previous technologies. I think they can all live uh, side by side. We're working on a big release this year, and there's going to be NFT drops. There's going to be vinyl. There's going to be you know everything along the way to serve the fan uh, as best we can. You know, it, it, in the article they point out, you know, j just because you build something new doesn't mean you have to tear down something old. Addison Ray used TikTok to get famous, but when she wanted to make a podcast, she signed with an agent. When she wanted to release music, she used a distributor. And when she wanted to act, she made a movie for Netflix. She got famous kind of on her own, but she needed help to build a career. Yes, absolutely. And as, as he mentioned in this, centralization is also effective for customers. It's easier to log on to Spotify and find all the music in the world than having dozens of individual relationships with artists. A centralized service also allows people to discover songs and artists they wouldn't otherwise know. So, you know, again, these are all things that, yes, things are changing and there is this ability to do all of these things if you're a content creator. But do you want to? Again, I, I don't do my own dental work. Um, <laughs> you don't? Uh, no, I know. Sometimes I feel like I should, but I don't. <laughs> and it's just, you know, let's let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, as, as to, to use a very old phrase. Yeah. But it's, it is really, and a lot of great links here. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll see, you know, the, that, 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 yes, the, the ability with all of these crypto, NFT, Web3 things it does resh it can i should it, i say it can reshape the relationship between an artist and a fan it can eliminate a middleman but that's not always good yeah and i heard and from a so, friend of mine last week that said i am not ever going to buy a non-fungible token uh, for me uh, i love 
these artists. I'll buy their music. I'll go see them live. I'll even buy their T-shirt at the show. Um, but yeah. I have no desire to own a digital collectible. But that's okay. It's not for everybody. It's like collecting yeah. baseball cards. That piece of cardboard is isn't worth hardly anything. But it could sell, you know, some of them sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, because of scarcity and because they can prove that that is the the original, right? Um, yes. If you subscribe to Sherry Who's uh, Patreon, and I've mentioned this before, but it's such a great resource. One of the things that she has there is this really great database. Um, she calls it her Music Web 3 dashboard. And you can kind of keep a running total of music NFTs and, and watch the trends. Um, and you can sort it by genre, artist, marketplace, you know, whatever you want, total sale price. And you can kind of see the trend. And that trend is that the early days of these massive, you know, uh, drops of an NFT that sells for like a million dollars, those are fewer and far between. It's really more about these uh, digital collectibles, some of them tied to physical goods, some of them not. Um, but here's a, an interesting stat from that, and that is that there there have been 1.7 music NFTs sold since June of 2020, but there have only been 342 musicians um, who have sold NFTs. So it's still, you know, like, let's just calm down a little bit. You know, this is in its infancy. Yes, there are some people who have made a lot of money doing this. But if you have a fan base and they would like to have a digital collectible, then you can make revenue from this. And there are so many other uses for DAOs and NFTs and the blockchain and, and all of this. And we'll, we'll do our best to kind of cover this as we move forward. But let's just take a deep breath. You know, this is, it's, it's new. We're all trying to kind of figure out how this is going to play and, and how it's going to be a part of these release cycles going forward. Absolutely. Well, Jay, with that, let us wrap up episode number 85. As we uh, as we call it a day, I want to thank, of course, the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town for their undying support. Boy, we, Jay, we appreciate, it. appreciate it. Indeed. And Jay, I want you to have a good weekend since it's Saturday morning still for here. You too, brother. Record. All right, I'm going to try. Folks, thanks for listening in. Jay and I certainly appreciate it. We will see you next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know. <laughs>